Well, Father, we come before you just hopeful and expectant of what you have in store for us. Father, I thank you for your word and how clearly it speaks and encourages and gives us perspective. And, and Father, I pray that this will be a message that will resonate with um, disheartened hearts, uh, people who need encouragement and confidence that in the end, you will reign on this world, that your son will be victorious. Help me to communicate clearly in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Mildred Gellers was an aspiring American actress in the 1930s, and she was unable to get any meaningful traction on her career, and so she went overseas, and in 1940, she got hired on with the German state radio. A few years later, even though the Uh, American embassy advised all Americans to return from Germany. She remained because she had a fiancé, and she also landed the role of a lifetime, lifetime as the hostess of Home Sweet Home, which was part of a Nazi propaganda campaign. Uh, They would play American jazz, and the Nazis hated American jazz, but they tolerated for the purpose of getting American soldiers to tune in and listen to the radio station. And then, in the breaks, she would address the American audience. She would tell them that they were actually fighting on the wrong side, that the German people were their friends, all in perfect English, by the way, since she was an American. And and she would tell them that it was actually the Jews who were the problem. She would tell them that they that they need to go home to their, to their families and, and do that soon before they returned in a coffin or, or injured or crippled. Uh, she would suggest that their American wives and girlfriends were actually running around on them with other men who deserted the war effort. And in her most infamous moment, one month before D-Day, she participated in a radio play where she played the part or the role of Evelyn, a mother from Ohio who lost her son in a failed D-Day invasion. All of this was to try to persuade the American soldiers that they were losing even as they were winning. Because if they thought they were losing, they would lose the will to fight. She went by Access Sally, by the way. You might have heard of her. Now, we have an Access Sally in our world where every day it seems like there's news about the destruction of Christianity. Young people are leaving the church in droves. This pseudo-Christian celebrity just went apostate. The future of Christianity is up in the air. You have the denomination that is overtaken by the, by the liberals, or this denomination is losing its cultural relevance because they're not keeping up with the times. You have the, the fact that COVID has divided many within the church, and you can just believe that we're all doomed. Last month is, is June, which is Pride Month, and it seemed like every single corporation had some shout-out to the homosexual agenda, which is really at odds with a biblical view of marriage. 
You have instances of, of church abuse. You have pastors who get fired and fall into scandal. And, and Access Sally is always taking hold of these stories and always using it to promote a narrative that you are going to lose. You are on the wrong side of history. You might as well quit fighting now. Now, Paul had his own propaganda machine that he was working with. As you recall, he was a prisoner in Rome, and one of the reasons why he was a prisoner in Rome is because Nero successfully persuaded the populace that the reason why they had this, this city-eating fire was because of those pesky Christians. Being a Christian, well, was a net negative. It might explain why all those in Asia, the leaders in Asia, turned against Paul and sold him down the river. Paul himself is in prison. He is about to be executed, and he knows it. And all the while, he's trying to hearten Timothy, his timid disciple, reminding him, listen, Timothy, you've got to share in your suffering as a soldier. You need to compete like an athlete according to the rules. You need to be the hardworking farmer. He's trying to motivate him to increase his morale. And he does so by, by reminding him that in the future, Timothy, in the future, Christian, we will win. Look at the passage for today. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He's telling Timothy to remember, remember, remember that we will win. I remember my last season of soccer in the seventh grade. Our team was, I don't know what the opposite of undefeated is, but we never won. And not only did we not win, I actually tallied all the scores and we lost a total of 90 to 1. We scored one goal, our opponent scored 90 on us. We knew we were toast every time we stepped up there. In fact, the last, we started to lose players. We were fielding teams of eight players against full-on 11-player squads. And everybody just knew, it was like, you know, everybody gets the goal today, right? I was glad to give them that kind of happiness because we certainly had none. And that's the thing is, if you expect to lose, what's going to happen? You're going to lose, right? If you buy the propaganda that we're going to lose, what do you expect is going to happen? And that's why they do it, is they want you to stop fighting. And so what is needed in the church and in all of us to keep fighting the good fight is an expectation that we will win, and what Paul does is he's giving us three recollections, three things to remember to remind you that we're going to win. 
Number one, remember that Jesus is a winner. Jesus is a winner. Remember the word of God wins. And remember that Christians win. If you remember all these things that we're going to win, it will increase your morale and we're going to continue to fight the good fight all the way to the end when we win. So let's look at the first point. Remember, Jesus is a winner. Verse 8. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So he's telling Timothy to suffer as a good soldier, right? To compete according to the rules as, a, as an athlete. He's telling them to be the hard-working farmer. And then he says, remember. Now, he's not implying that Jesus somehow is a forgotten misnomer. Like, who are we worshiping again? Jesus Christ. Okay, that's right. That's not what he's talking about. When he's saying remember, it's in the context of remember the Alamo. Remember the victory. Remember what Jesus has done. And instead of just remembering all the brave courage of the Texas Freedom Fighters, they're to remember two truths. One, that Jesus is risen from the dead. And two, he is the offspring of David. I mean, you go back in time to that first Passover, the text I just read to you, and how that was a night of foreboding, wasn't it? They're sitting in this room knowing that one in their number is going to betray Jesus. And he was betrayed. He was taken in the night by the spiritual authorities. He was put before a kangaroo court and given injustice. He was presented before Pilate, the governing authority, and he was given a death sentence which was confirmed by Herod. On that day, as Jesus hung on the cross, the Jewish leadership was very satisfied because they were about to eradicate a heretic who was going to lead their country astray and bring about the wrath of Rome. On that day, the Romans were relieved that there would be peace in Rome. There wasn't going to be any uprising because their leader was being crucified. And all of the minions of the underworld, the forces of darkness were celebrating because they beat the odds. They knew all the prophecy. They knew everything that was going to be said about him. But they managed to successfully kill the Son of God. All of them were relieved. All of them were celebrating. All of them believed that they had achieved their victory when he gave up his spirit and he died. But on the glorious Sunday, what happened? The power of God reanimated Jesus. The stone was rolled away. He walked out of the tomb never to die again. Never to die again. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday morning is a resurrection of Jesus Christ that he will reign forever. He will never term out. His death will not end because, his reign will not end because of death. He is the forever king. It confirms that he is who he said he was. In the words of Romans 1, 4, 
Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection shows that Jesus is a winner. And it shouldn't be surprised because he's also the offspring of David. He's the offspring of David. Victory is in his bloodline. And you know the story of David. Obviously, you have the famous David and Goliath where he showed himself that with God, you can defeat even the mightiest of warriors. He went on to be the, the anointed king of Israel who brought them into a golden age. He conquered his enemies. He ruled as a man after God's own heart. God made a covenant with him saying that from your bloodline, I'm going to build a house that there will always be a king that comes from you. And, and many of these kings would come and they would go. But Jesus, on account of the resurrection, showed that he is the forever king. And there was always this hopeful expectation that the Messiah would come. Like, when you hear the term Jesus, it's Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is Greek for Messiah, the anointed one, that he is the promised king who is going to come and restore Israel to their golden age. And the resurrection showed that he is indeed that person. He will one day come and redeem all of his people. He is the Christ. He is a promised one. He is the Messiah. He's the one risen from the dead who will reign over Israel, but reigns right now in the church. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the church. All those who follow him will never die because we read in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When he died, he died for our sin. When he was raised, he was raised so that we might be right before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Completely forgiven in every sense. And so when Paul says my gospel is separating it from all counterfeits, it's not the, the gospel of the false teachers, it's the gospel that he imparted to Timothy, the true gospel that is based off of historical fact. Jesus is a winner, he will win, and all those who are on his team are going to win. And so a lot of times you think, man, you know, Christians, we're just losing our cultural influence. We've lost Hollywood. We lost the government. We're losing all these big corporations. We're losing the, the university. We are irrelevant. But if you were to stand those players, right, the government and the university and these institutions all on one team, and you were to have Jesus on the other, and you were to pick teams, who would you choose? Right? You choose to be on team Jesus because he is going to win. Those CEOs, those university presidents, all of them are going to come and go, but Jesus is going to come back and he will reign forever. And those who are on his team are going to win. Never forget that. The whole world can rage against him, but they will always lose. Jesus is a winner. 
And not only is Jesus a, a winner, we need to remember that, you need to remember that the word of God wins. The word of God wins. Look at verse 9. For which I am suffering. Talk about my gospel. Bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For Paul, preaching the gospel with regularity meant that he paid the price. If he didn't preach the gospel, he would not be harassed. But because he preached the gospel, many of the Jews thought that he was a heretic that was threatening to, to poison the Jewish religion. Because he was preaching the gospel with such regularity, structural systems were being upset, like in Ephesus, right? They had the big idol-making industry, and so many people converted that it was threatening the pocketbook of many of the idol-makers, and so they raged and they rioted. He was a menace to society because he was effectively preaching the word of God. And so they chain him. They put him in prison, and Paul makes it very clear that you can chain me, but you cannot chain the word of God. It will find a way. And for centuries, organizations and countries have tried to chain the Word of God, but the Word of God has always found a way to do what it was supposed to do. You look at Japan in the 19th century. For two and a half centuries, they expelled all missionaries. They wanted no outsiders. They wanted to preserve Japanese culture. No Bibles, no missionaries, no pastors, no churches. Well, in the 19th century, uh, a young man named Nisima Shimata paid a visit to a friend's house. He was curious by nature. He was very learned and intelligent, was studying many languages. And he found a couple of pages of a Chinese book. And with his limited understanding of Chinese, he was able to translate the first sentence that said, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And for the first time, he realized that there's actually a divine being that created the heavens and the earth and that created him. And he prayed this prayer to his creator God. Oh, if you have eyes, look upon me. If you have ears, listen to me. This drive led him to want to learn more about this book. And so he stowed away eventually made his way to America, found a church, discovered the gospel, converted, was educated, and returned to Japan when the open door took place and started a Christian university. Right? The word of God found a way. When you preach it, you release it. And the word of God will find its way to the heart of a certain elect group of people. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, Paul knows that when the word of God is unchained and finds its way to the elect, good things are going to happen, and that gives him hope. Now, naturally, you read the word elect, and it's like, well, what are you talking about? 
Well, that refers to the work that God does in choosing people to come to him. Look at uh, Acts 16, 14. I see a real life example uh, in Paul's life. Paul's preaching the gospel, and this is what happens in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Notice she didn't open her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Now, why did that have to take place? Well, Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Everyone who is born is born with a disposition to sin, and they have a spiritual blindness. There is a veil in their heart. And so something happened in Lydia. <clears throat> so I like to say that everyone on earth is born with an AM receiver, but the gospel is, is basically transmitted with an FM signal. Until the Lord does a work in their life, they're not ready to hear it. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was excited because this seemed like the best of all possible worlds. So you're telling me that I'm a sinner who deserves to go to hell for the wrongs I've done against God. Okay, that makes sense. I believe it. And the way it's presented to me the initial time is they gave that in one message and then they waited 24 hours to give the good news, right? It was a long 24 hours, by the way. So what you're telling me is that Jesus died on the cross doing something that I could not do, that if I trust in him, he will take all my sin upon him and he will give me all of his righteousness so that I can be in heaven forever. And not only that, he's going to change my heart, make me a new creation, liberate me from the bondage of sin, so I'll be free of sin and go to heaven with him when I die. Sign me up. It just seemed like the right thing to do. It was good news. And so I would think that all I had to do was just tell my friends and they would say, why haven't I heard about this, Dave? Sign me up. Now, did that happen? What happened was all these people that I was telling the gospel to didn't see it as, as good news. They saw it as bad news. They saw it as bad news because they didn't want to be separated from their sin, whether it was partying or sleeping with their girlfriend or, or whatever. They wanted to run their life. They wanted to live their life their way. They wanted to live their life on their terms, not God's terms. And therefore, it was bad news. And so what has to happen is the Lord has to do something in their lives. He has to draw them. In John 6, Jesus is saying some very hard things to the people of Israel. He's telling them that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, we know what he means by that is you have to believe in him. You have to abide in him. But people were walking away because this just seemed to be too hard, too challenging. It made no sense. They were just following him, looking for a meal, and they were wandering away. And Jesus explains why that's the case. In John 6, 44 
I'm sorry, 64 and 65, he says this. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So the Father has to give permission. He has to do something. He clarifies in 644, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? God has to intervene. I mean, do you ever pray for somebody to come to faith? Do you ever pray? I mean, what are you praying that God will do? You're praying that God will do something in their life to make Jesus attractive to them. Because we implicitly understand that that is impossible with human intervention. If there was a human way that we convert people, what would we be doing here, right? But we pray because we're asking God to do something only that he can do. And this, this effectual call, as it's called, works with the word of God. So that when the word of God is preached to those who are the elect, good things will happen. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. It's right there. We know from 2 Corinthians 2, 16, that the gospel is a fragrance from death to death and to the other, the fragrance of life to life. It's bad news to some people, it's good news to the other. What changes who is what? Well, that's something that God does. And so this is why this is such good news. If you're faithfully preaching the gospel, if the word of God is always going out, it will always be successful with the right group of people. Success is not measured by how many people you pack into a church. It's measured by whether or not the sheep recognize the voice of Jesus and come to him. When you preach the gospel, there is a guaranteed harvest that the right people, the elect people, the ones called by God, will come to faith. Therefore, Paul is able to endure all things because he knows there is certain victory. The word of God will win. It will win in the hearts and the soul of those who are the elect. So Jesus is a winner. The word of God is going to win. And you need to remember that Christians win. Christians win. Verse 11. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now this is a trustworthy saying. It's something that was known to Timothy, probably known to the audience. People speculate that this might have been a baptismal hymn, right? When people are about to be baptized, they, they sing out these words to remind them of this journey they're about to embark on. And, and the first line says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we died with him, we will live with him. It's the imagery of baptism. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. Now, in March, we had one of our, well, two of our greatest Sundays. We, we baptized 18 people. It was awesome, including two of my kids. 
And, and baptism is a, is a picture. There's nothing about baptism that saves you. There's no magic in the water. But when that person is dunked, they are buried, right? They are dead. And so when we talk about the language of, of dying, we're talking about a death. And Paul likens uh, you know, the relationship of, <clears throat> of us with sin as almost being in a bad marriage, right? The mar- marriage bond is broken by death. And so if somebody has a bad marriage and they die, the good news is they no longer have a bad marriage. The bad news is they're dead, right? No real winner in that case. So we're in bondage to sin, and, and maybe that will be broken when you're dead, but the good news is you come back to life. You're raised to new life. And so ultimately, you have a new life, but where sin is no longer your master, you don't have to sin. You don't have to do that thing. God has given you freedom, and that is good news. The bondage is broken. Jesus, your king, has freed you from it so that he can have complete rule in your life. And he's a benevolent king. Those who give themselves to sin, who allow sin to reign over them, they literally make a deal with the devil, don't they? They might get temporary pleasure, temporary enjoyment, but at great cost to their soul, which will show itself perhaps in this life, certainly in the life to come. But Jesus has freed you from that. Secondly, we learn that if we endure, we'll also reign with him. If you live with him and you keep on fighting and enduring and persevering, the reward is that you will reign with Christ. Now, what exactly that looks like, I'm not quite sure. But we see some hints of it in Matthew 19:28, where the disciples are asking, what do we get for following you? And this is what he says, Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In the parable of the minas where the master gives three of his servants various currencies, one is given five minas and he makes it 10, to which the master says in Luke 19, 17, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. In some way, when you are faithful and you endure, you will reign with Christ for me, I'll just be excited to be there. I'll be just excited to be there. And if I'm scrubbing eternal toilets, that's going to be one of the best jobs I'll ever have, right? That raises some theological questions, by the way, right? <laughs> we will have resurrected bodies. I, I know. Another sermon, another time. Josh, maybe you can preach on that next week. Um... But there's going to be the privilege of not only residing in heaven, but presiding over heaven. That is a reward for those who endure to the end. But not everybody who starts that journey will finish it. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Not all who start the race will finish. And this was actually personal for Paul because as we keep on reading, he singles out a couple. In 2 Timothy 2.17, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, two men who denied the faith. Jesus warns in Matthew 10.33, but whoever denies me before men, 
I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These are the pastors who deconvert on Instagram. They're the Christians who swing the, swim the wrong way across the Tiber and even though they know better, join the Roman Catholic faith. There are people who deny the true gospel for a more permissive and updated gospel that's more socially conscious and aware. It's those people who have fallen in love with their sin and even though they have been warned and warned and pled with, have gone all the way through the stages of church discipline and said, I'd rather have my sin than Jesus. There are, not everyone who starts the race is going to finish. If you deny Jesus, if you deny Jesus by your doctrine, by your life, by your profession, you will be denied when you stand before him. He will say, away from me, I never knew you. Now that can raise a certain degree of agitation, can't it? Am I going to be one of those who will deny Jesus? To which Paul rounds it out with, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now there's two ways of understanding this. One would say that he is faithful to punish those who do not have faith. But there's another way that I think is more in keeping with the context. You see, every single line of this uh, little elegant saying has a different meaning. And for him to reinforce judgment uh, would be repeating himself where he doesn't do that elsewhere. Further, when we talk about the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God usually accompanies good things and blessings. The better way of understanding if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself is that Jesus will be faithful to those Christians who have a faltering faith. Jesus will be faithful to those Christians with a faltering faith. You know, and the Bible's full of them, aren't they? You look at Peter. He denied Jesus three times, and that was a faltering faith. He was confronted by Paul because he went against what he knew better. You look at Paul, where he's writing that all in Asia have turned against me, which was not necessarily true, but was the echoes of a heart in despair. You look at Mark, who abandoned the mission. You look at, you look at Thomas, who was doubting that he rose from the dead. You look at the disciples, who still had a hard time believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now, in the end, they kept their faith, but even when their faith was faltering, Christ was faithful because he made a promise and he intended to keep it. And I think what this shows is that we are not saved by the strength and clarity of our faith so much as the object of our faith. D.A. Carson uh, shares a well-known story, forgive me if you've already heard it, about two Jews named Smith and Brown, right? Jewish names, to be sure. And this was the day before the first Passover. They're in the land of Goshen. They saw all of these plagues, and they are informed that you need to do certain activities to make sure that the angel of death passes over your home and doesn't take the life of your firstborn son. And so, Smith tells Brown, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about what's going to happen tonight. I mean, the angel of death is going to pay this country a visit. 
And Brown tells Smith, well, have you slaughtered the lamb? Go, yeah. Did you put the lamb's blood on the doorpost and the lintel? Did that. Uh, Are you packed and ready to go? Well, yes. Are you ready to eat the feast when the time comes? Uh, You bet, I'm not stupid. Why are you still nervous? Well, you just look at all of the plagues that we experience, the, the flies and the frogs and the blood. I mean, you, you have three sons. I just have one. I can't afford to lose him. I don't know. I'm just nervous about what's going to happen tonight. And Brown says, well, I'm not. Bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. So on that night... When the angel of death comes and visits Egypt, who will lose their son? What's the answer? Neither. Neither. You see, what that reveals is that we're not saved by the strength and and clarity of our faith, right? We're saved by the object of our faith. In this case, the reason why they were both preserved was because they had faith in the shed blood of the Lamb that if they do what the Lord told them to do, in that act of faith, they will be delivered. And see, and and that's something to remember is that ultimately we are carried across the finish line by Jesus. Even when our faith wavers, even when we blow it, even during times of great doubt, he is still faithful to us. Now, we can't deny him. We can't deny him. But when we fail, he is still faithful. So that means, Christian, in the end, you're going to win. You will win. The world might have the government. It might have Hollywood. It might have all of these companies. It might have these celebrities. But if you have Jesus, what more do you need? If you're on Team Jesus... He is on your team, he is on your side, and you're going to win. And so why is this such a a relevant topic today? Pastorally, I have sensed that this is a season of fear. Not just in the world, but also in the church. There is almost this agitation, this fear that we're going to drift towards cultural irrelevance or we might drift toward, towards liberalism or, or, or whatever. There is just this profound fear and this anxiety that all is lost and we have no hope. If you look at your news feed, I mean, what are some of the headlines that you read? I went to foxnews.com when I wrote this message and here are some of the headlines I wrote. Or not I wrote, I read. I don't write for Fox News. <laughs> Former New York PD commissioner, Police are being vilified and demonized. Experts sound off on the media's negative or absent coverage of religion, incomplete at best. Babylon B CEO cuts ties to MailChimp, accuses email service of censoring conservatives. And you just go on down the line. It's just headline after headline after headline. Now, did you know that the business of Fox News is to make money? to get you to click on their website. And we are drawn to those headlines that are, boy, I better find out about this censoring business. 
Click, cash. It's a business. It's a business. Their goal is to make you anxious or angry. And it's not Fox News, it's Huffington Post. I mean, you pick the website. They're all designed to do the same thing, is to make you fretful and fearful. And as we have a lot of extra time on our hand, especially during COVID and when we're out of contact, contact with human beings, a lot of people were discipled by the internet. And they were taught to be fearful. You look at social media. Twitter, in particular, there was a, a study that showed that 6% of the users generate 20% of the tweets. And that 70% of all tweets were, 70% uh, of all the political tweets were from extremists, right? The, the leftmost 5 to 10% or the rightmost 5 to 10%, however they measure those. They also did some further study on who were the people who are these extreme tweeters. They found that there are people who don't have a lot of social connections in their offline lives. That they are seeking to forge an identity on the internet. That that is who they are. They are a fierce warrior for their cause. They seem to exaggerate their numbers, saying how many people are with them so they don't seem so extreme. In contrast, somebody who is more moderate, what they found is that they usually have robust offline lives and that they know that if I were to tweet about this or post about this, I may jeopardize some of these social relationships that are important to me. And so what begins to happen is if you follow social media, the views are more extreme because the people who don't have those social relationships are using them to promote their views, to forge some sort of identity. And so they are very loud. And those people with social relationships who kind of live in the real world, who have a lot to lose, keep silent. And so you watch that and you get a skewed view of reality. You see, we have an access sally of this world that is always trying to tell you that you are losing, you are losing, hope is gone, stop fighting. And when Christians buy that message, they're in great danger. We're celebrating Independence Day today, a day that almost didn't happen. The year was 1976, it was in the winter. And George Washington and his Continental Army were on the run. They got whipped in New York. And the British were driving them across New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Their uniforms were threadbare. They were running out of supplies. People were giving up on the army, not wanting to finance them because who wants to finance a loser? Many of the enlistments, their terms were about to be up. And they thought, why stay in this army when we're going to lose and die as traitors? But then on Christmas night, 1776, George Washington crossed the Delaware River. They found an enemy encampment and a garrison. They surrounded it. And after a brief but fierce fighting, they neutralized two-thirds of the enemy army. It was the first time that the Continental Army defeated professional soldiers. And after that, the enlistments increased. The funding increased. The morale was lifted, and they had hope that we can actually win this thing. And that gave them the will to keep on fighting, which is exactly what the church needs, because we have a better message than the world. 
Paul says in Philippians 2, or Philippians 1, 27 through 30, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see, when we suffer for the gospel, when they throw the worst at us and they wonder why do they keep on fighting, they begin to tremble in fear because they perceive accurately that we know something that they don't know, that in the end, we are going to win. We have a better message. It's not the time to panic. It's time for them to panic. See, we don't need to be afraid of our adversaries. We need to reach our adversaries. We don't need to hide from them. We need to have compassion on them and not be afraid that they're going to give us spiritual cooties because we know something they don't know. We have someone on our side who they do not have. And as we faithfully preach and reach them with the gospel, we can do so in the confidence in the end, we're going to win and we're looking for other winners to join us. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, I am just thankful for the victory that we have secured in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will all move forward and march forward, knowing that in the end, we're going to win. That we won't let fear and anxiety rule our church, but we'll let the fear of the Lord rule our church and rule our hearts. And move forward and confident that you have people for us to reach. Give us confidence so that we'll endure all things for the sake of the elect. Help us to be bold in our gospel proclamation. Lord, bless this church and bless our hearts. Lift our morale. Help us to walk away joyful at the victory to come. In Jesus' name, amen.